Welcome back to the Discipleship Podcast for Palmetto Shores Church. This is Morgan Bird, and I'm here with Kyle Stewart again. We just finished our second Sunday seminar going through the book of Judges, and we made some huge leaps and bounds. We picked up in Judges 3, verse 7, and we went all the way to the end of verse 8. And so basically what we're going to do for just a few minutes is we're just going to look at each of the Judges that we covered tonight at the Sunday seminar Uh, But to kick us off, I want to read verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2, because that really describes this cycle that we see over and over and over in the book of Judges. So I'm going to read that, and then uh, we're going to look at the different Judges. So this is Judges chapter 2, 18 and 19. It says, Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And so this cycle just kind of ends up repeating uh, itself again and again and again. And, um, You know, you mentioned, Kyle, at the beginning of your teaching that God gave these judges to Israel for their good. And so let's just start one by one and and talk through each of them. So first we've got, uh, is I think you pronounce it Othniel. Does that sound right? Yep. All right, so who is Othniel? And I don't know, what's one or two highlights uh, from his his experience? Yeah, so we're first introduced Othniel in chapter 1 when we see uh, Caleb... uh, almost um, giving out his daughter to whoever would step up and conquer uh, the land of uh, Debir. And, uh, of course, Othniel would be the one who uh, did that, and he won the prize of um, Caleb's daughter. And uh, then we see again here in chapter 3 um, that for uh, after eight years of Israel living under the uh, hand of uh, Kushan, Rishthayam, the king of Mesopotamia, uh, Othniel uh, is raised up to uh, judge Israel, and he is the one who would kind of give this first picture of the full cycle that we see with the judges, that um, in 7 it says, And the people of Israel did what was evil inside the Lord, and they forgot the Baal, or they forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Asheroth. And then... Um, we see again in verse 9 the uh, the graciousness of the Lord in this, that but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up deliverer for the people of Israel. And so uh, with Othniel, it's just a kind of like that first prime example of um, what these experiences with the judges are going to be, that the people of Israel chose to go their own way and do evil inside the Lord, and the Lord was gracious enough to raise up a judge to deliver them from um, the the oppression. And then, um, as we see at the end of Othniel's little paragraph here, um, he they had rest in the land for 40 years, and then the son, uh, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So um, after that, the cycle just starts all over again. But with Othniel, um, it's just kind of that picture-perfect um, story, just quick and easy of um, seeing... Uh, this cycle of Israel's disobedience, the Lord's graciousness, and um, how that works in that uh, continual cycle that they have. Cool. So that's Othniel. And then the next guy is 
uh, Ehud or Ehud? Is that how you say that? Ehud. Ehud, okay. Um, and it's really interesting. You really drew out uh, something significant in verse 12. It starts so similar. So this is chapter 3, verse 12. It starts so similar. And the people of Israel, again, did what, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But then here's the interesting twist. It says, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So hey, before we even get into like talking about Ehud uh, and his story a little bit more, what was significant about that verse that you drew out um, about God's turning his hand against Israel? Yep, so we talked about um, another instance of this uh, scenario where the Lord seems to be working against his people. And we looked at uh, the story in Exodus where Moses goes to the Pharaoh or goes to Pharaoh and says, you know, let my people go. And it says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so we get that weird um, uh, image that the Lord is actually not working for his people, that he's um, almost on the enemy side. But what we know is um, from the instance with Pharaoh is that God had to harden the heart of Pharaoh multiple times in order for uh, his um, his graciousness to come through at the end when they were finally released and freed from Egypt uh, before they go into um, the wandering for 40 years. Uh, Pharaoh had his heart hardened by the Lord so that God's uh, glory and his plan would shine um, even more so um, at the, uh, uh, the release of the Israelites. So um, kind of same thing here with the story in Ehud. Uh, that um, the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, and uh, the Lord strengthened, or he hardened the heart of uh, Pharaoh, uh, ultimately so that it would set up the stage for the Lord to be glorified at the end um, in the way that he sees most fit. Awesome. So if you were to take us into the story then, the rest of the story, and just kind of, in a, I don't know, a short little bit, just kind of, Tell us the narrative of Ehud's story. What is What are some unique things about it? What are some kind of funny, weird things about it? I mean, I feel like this is one of those sections in Judges that you think of when you think of Judges. Like, this is the book of Judges on display. And so, I don't know, what are a couple things that stand out to you about the rest of his reign uh, or his, his, his judging? Yep, so uh, I love the story of Ehud because it's... Um... It's just a funny story, almost. It's it's uh, it's not comedic, but it's it's funny. It's uh, it's when you read it as a, as a story, uh, you can almost picture watching it on a TV screen or um, almost like as a fictional story. But um, it's a uh, you see Yehud, who's um, labeled right away as this left-handed man who um, may seem like uh, almost like a hindrance to him, but what we know from just seeing left-handed people in, in scripture that they're uh, known to be good warriors and good in battle. So uh, it sets it up for really the climax of the story when um, you have this King Eglon who is um, boastful in himself. He's a big fat man who's um, ruling over them and says they've been um, ruling over Israel for 18 years and, um, Finally, Ehud comes to uh, the king and he says, you know, I have the secret message for you. And it's just that uh, that phrase, I have a secret message for you from God, almost is humorous. It's uh, that Eglon would 
um, you know, say, wow, like, I want to hear from this God of yours and um, hear what he has to say to me. But in the end, turns it would be his, um, his demise there that um, Eglon, being the left-handed man he is, would um, trick Eglon into... Uh, stabbing him and you know we get that picture that the the dagger went all the way through even the handle and um, then as he escapes through the window and um, he comes back and uh, as the people are you know frantic that they're they've just found their king dead um, Ehud is ready to you know wipe them out and um, lead Israel into um, into uh, into rest again so uh, it really it's a funny story to read and um, it happens really quick, but uh, we get a picture that God uses, you know, people in their in their quirks that, you know, he used this left-handed man who's good at, who's good with battle, um, who's good at being ambidextrous. And um, he uses this, uh, just this, this scenario um, to show that God can use anybody in any circumstance and um, that uh, there is no like limit to what God can do through anybody. But um that his uh, salvation can come through obedience and um, confidence in who he is. Awesome, man. So if you're reading the book of Judges and you were reading too fast, uh, you would potentially skip over the next judge because it only gets one verse at the end of uh, chapter 3. And so uh, we get Shamgar. Uh, verse 31, this is, this is Judges 3.31. It says, After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. And that's it. That's all we get about him. Um, and so we're not going to spend much time talking about him. Uh, there he is. God used him to save Israel, like the other judges. Uh, and then we quickly move into chapter 4. So in chapter 4, we get the story about Deborah uh, and Barak. And it's kind of interesting, you know, this story with... Um, Deborah and Barak, it's, it's kind of like you've got almost like you've got two leaders who are kind of working together. Uh, but Deborah is like confident. She trusts the Lord. She's like ready to go. And Barak is this timid guy um, who doesn't want to like get involved. Um, I love like down in verse 14 of chapter four, when uh, it's time to like jump in and actually take action. Uh, this is what Deborah says. As Deborah says to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor. So it's kind of like um, Barak is waiting on her to, to kind of push him and encourage him and help him know that he can really trust God. Now, that verse I read, it, it sounds exciting because she's trusting God and she's saying, hey, like, Today's the day. God is with us. He's gone before us. But you shared um, a little little tidbit for us, understanding what was unique about that day in particular. Why was it that they were able to see a victory, and how did how God used something on that particular day to give Israel victory over a, a large enemy? Yeah. So we really didn't cover much into chapter five because it's um, it's a a song of the. Uh, recounting the events that happened, but we looked at a little piece of it and that it retells um, that there was a a big rain or a big storm that came through on that day of the battle. 
And as you look at the beginning of chapter four, it mentions that um, that these people, uh, that sister's army had 900 chariots of iron. And when you think about uh, you're in a hill country and you have a lot of rain and, you know, you get the potential for flash flooding, you know, chariots aren't worth anything going up and down uh, paths or mountains or anything. So um, just the way that the Lord would use that situation that, um, they would use Israel, who'd be the underdogs in the situation, in the um, with, you know, maybe a less advanced military, um, not as uh, high tech of weapons, but uh, instead, on this day where uh, they would fight these nine hundred chariots of iron, um, that these floods would come through or the storm would come through, and it would deliver um, them into Israel's hands, and uh, um, as we'll see. You know, after that, the 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 leader of the army was you know terrified, and he fled from his army. He fled from the battle and and left, and um, uh, uh, Barak had to follow and try to chase him down. But um, I just think it's interesting that uh, you know, as the underdogs, as Israel was the underdogs in the situation because of their lack of um, uh, resources, I guess you'd say. Um, or even um, probably even nervousness, as we saw with Barak and, you know, saying, I'm not going unless you go with me, um, uh, just to see how God showed up in that moment at that time for them uh, to be successful. Yeah, man, I know when I, when I look at the end of chapter four, it helps me see something unique about judges but also how that helps us understand our lives so the the last uh, couple verses there in verse 4 or verse 23 in particular it says so on that day god subdued jabin the king of canaan before the people of israel so the text is saying that god did this but what we know is that uh how god did it is that he used the encouragement of deborah he used a rainstorm and he used a housewife who drove a tent peg through a guy's head, but then at the end of the text, it says, God did this. So what we're learning is that while God can and does at times get involved in our lives in sort of miraculous, unexplainable ways, most of the time, God is working sovereignly through ordinary, everyday events. He's working through um, the decisions we make. He's working through the weather. He's working through all sorts of thousands of things we have no idea but God is accomplishing his purposes and he's doing it through ordinary everyday things and I think sometimes we get stuck because we 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 get stuck between thinking like if God is sovereign then why does life feel so normal why does life kind of just feel so humdrum well God uses everyday ordinary things to accomplish his purposes and I think I think that's one of the biggest things we're seeing through judges is he's using human beings real human beings who could get cut and and bleed and die i mean he's using them to accomplish his purposes and um that's what that's really what i took away from chapter four all right so uh the last judge that we looked at is named gideon and he gets a lot of press he gets a couple of chapters uh between chapter six seven eight and so there's a number of things uh one thing that stuck out to me is that um once again, Israel's gone through the same cycle, and God has given them into the hands of Midian. But in verse 6, 
it's almost like the heart of God opens up a little bit and we understand why God is giving giving Israel over. It says in, this is chapter 6, verse 6, And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So it is in their disobedience, God is sending them, like you said earlier, he's putting his hand against his, his own people, but in that, they're being humbled, and it leads them to cry out for help. And then uh, you spent a little bit of time tonight talking about Gideon. Why was Gideon someone that we wouldn't have necessarily chosen to be a judge? Why is Gideon someone that we wouldn't have picked if we were picking um, someone to be a judge for us? Yeah, almost Gideon almost disqualifies himself here. He uh, talks a lot about um, you know how he he's the smallest of his father's house and the weakest of his clan and. Um, it really makes it more human for us to see how uh, Gideon kind of sees um, his weaknesses and um, almost as a self-degrading um, mindset that a lot of times we might think that we might just try to disqualify ourselves from doing things. Um, but uh, we see that Gideon knows and accepts this loyalty position that he has um, and almost tries to disqualify himself from the job that God has called him to do. Yeah, man, and in a way, I almost feel like who Gideon is is actually perfect for this whole story because the whole story of Gideon, Gideon by the time we get into chapter 7, we realize is that, like you said earlier, God is trying to show off his glory. God is trying to show that he doesn't need us. He can accomplish his purposes. He can save Israel, and he can do all of it without any of our help. And so it's almost like God intentionally went and picked someone who was the least and the weakest, and then... When you get into chapter 7, you see that God then begins to even whittle down the army. So they've got this, they actually have like a decent sized army, but God actually whittles it down to this really small number, down to 300. And then God ends up conquering uh, the enemy with just a few hundred men. So it's almost like Gideon himself is this little miniature picture of how God wants to bring about salvation using the least and the weakest so that he gets the glory for it. One thing that's interesting to me about Gideon, though, maybe different from the judges we've looked at so far, is that it seems like all the other judges seem to lean pretty heavily on the military side, right? They're going in, they're killing somebody, they're taking somebody out, they're you know, attacking with an army. But there's, a, there's an aspect of Gideon's leadership that's a little bit different. Um, there's this middle section in chapter six about the altars. Um, can you just maybe tell us a little bit of the story? Like what happens with the altars? And I guess I'll ask you this, like, why is that maybe a little bit more significant than even what's happened with some of the other judges up to this point? So, uh, there's a situation in, um, and, uh, where Gideon, is told to tear down the uh, altars of Baal that his father had made. And um, he's told to instead, after he takes them or tears them down, to build an altar to the Lord, um, to the true God. And so as Gideon did it, he did it at night because he was scared. Um, but when the people came in the morning, they called um, for whoever had did that to bring to them to kill him. And... Um, Interesting enough that the father of Gideon 
came to the defense of um, came to the defense of Gideon and said, you know, if if this Baal is who he says he is, you know, let him contend for himself and um, gave him a new name, uh, Jerobel, which means uh, you know for Baal to contest for himself. So if this Baal, if this false god is so real, um, let him contend for himself and um, put to death uh, for this um, seemingly crime. And uh, why that's different from most of the uh, judges is that it gives us a more of a spiritual um, aspect to uh, this, to the situation that um, Gideon recognized that the Lord is the, um, the director and the sustainer and the leader of, of uh, the Israelites, not um, any false god or Baal or any altar or idols that they could come up with, but um, he really points to um, the authority that the Lord has over um, Israel and that the Lord is the one directing and leading the charge when it comes to being um, uh, saved from their oppressors and their enemies. And uh, so for this first act that Gideon does and tearing down the, this altar to Baal um, is really attacking some of um, the people at their core and what they believe and saying, you know, this isn't real. This isn't what gives you life. But instead, this um, this Lord, our Yahweh, the true God, is the one who can only deliver you from your um, from sin and the cycle of, of death and uh, um, uh, being conquered over and over. So um, I think that's what makes Gideon different is that he's got this more um, uh, one God-centeredness focus that um, it's the Lord who conquers and delivers and not these false images or idols and prophets and, and so on. Yeah, man, I know it seems so hopeful. Gideon is this, yes, he's this warrior, but really like God, more than the other stories, God really intervenes. And then he tears down the altars and you're almost feeling like, okay, is this it? Look, is this the moment? Are they finally going to obey? Are they finally going to be reformed and follow, follow Yahweh? But then chapter eight ends uh, and it, it brings you right back to the same place again. Um, this is chapter 8, the last three verses there. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made uh, Baal Berit their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. So Gideon's own name had been changed because he had torn down the altar to Baal. And it seemed like the people had, you know, made this reform and decided they wanted to obey God. But then just like with all these other judges, as soon as Gideon died, uh, they turned back. Um, Here's one last question I want to ask you, and then we'll be wrapped up for the day. Uh, I've noticed that maybe four or five times now in the book of Judges, uh, the imagery of the the concept of a whore has been brought up. Now that's strong language. It's hard, honestly. It's just like you say that and you just kind of jump back. You're like, oh my gosh, like is that in the Bible? And it's like, yeah, it is. And it's it's been in here like a number of times. Um, in your in your opinion, like what do you think that imagery is intended to conjure up in our minds as we think about what the people were doing and how they were relating to God. Um, why is that such a strong image for what's going on here? 
Yeah, it's a really strong image, a strong word. I mean, like you said, it takes you back almost like we don't want to associate ourselves as whoring after something at all. I mean, that it's such a derogatory or derogatory um, word that we associate that with and um, just the acts of what that means to whore after something. Um, it, it's nasty, it, it's unclean, and um, we almost don't even um, want to say it out loud. But um, what really is happening is um, when we choose to go and um, take something that's true and what it brings life and um, that sustains us and we choose to uh, chase after something that's temp- temporal or um, has no substantial um, truth to it, then uh, we're whoring after false things. And um, that's what God wants us to feel. He wants us to feel that um, the heaviness of that, of that uh, idea that we are choosing to um, cheat on God. We're choosing to chase after things that, um, that would ruin our relationship with him. And so in the same way that um, we whore after something else um, or whether it's a relationship or um, in our actions or the way we think, um, we whore after the world by choosing ourselves rather than choosing God. And so um, I think it, that word it sounds bad and it is it's a it's a hard word to say but um, it almost isn't nearly as strong as the consequences of um, living a life like that either because we know that um, a life that is separated from God leads to death and uh, eternal death at that but um, to uh, to find um, the truth in God and. Um, that rest that we do get from knowing that Jesus is our, our Lord and Savior and that we can have eternal life through Him, um, that should make us want to not to uh, whore from uh, His truths, but to cling to who He is and His truths and what He's done for us um, and not you know chase after these things that destroy us. But um, yeah, I think that it's a hard word. It, it does show up a lot, but... Um, I think it's important for us to know that uh, we can't have both. We have mm. we can only choose uh, one path, and you know, just as you know, John fourteen six, uh, Jesus says, "I'm the way, the truth, and the life." Um, there is no other way except for Him, and so we have to choose one or the other, and we can't have both. And if we have both, then we're whoring after false, um, false a false life. So. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard, it's tough, but, um, it's really beautiful when you think about, um, choosing God and God only in the end. Yeah, man. And I will just end with this. Like you've been so consistent, uh, these last two weeks to remind us that judges is judges is as much as it is about our failures. It's as much about God's faithfulness. And I think when you when you embrace that image of the whore and you accept that that's what our sin is to God, then it makes His pursuing us and His loving us and His continuing to be faithful us just that more amazing. And you can you continue to bring us back to that again and again um, so far in Judges. So, uh, y'all, this is this is the uh, I guess this is the first half almost maybe of Judges. Uh, we've got two more Sunday night Sunday seminars here, and then we'll be putting out two more of these recordings. But hopefully you've got your Bible open and you're walking through the text with us and 
able to see how God is, is moving through this book. Um, so we'll look forward to being back with you next week. And uh, God bless you as you can seek to follow him with your whole life. Uh, our, our vision here is to know Jesus and make all of life about him. Peace out.